came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. I'm Xenia Chmutina. And I'm Darian Alexander-Williams. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Today's episode is part of season four. Thank you for tuning in. Hey, Jason. Hey, how are you? I'm good. So, I mean, yeah, I'm good. Um, I am missing traveling because usually, you know, over Easter, I'd be away somewhere. I don't know where. <laughs> Not on my sofa. That's so, so sad. So sad. That is really sad. I haven't been anywhere for like over a year now. But so you can imagine the amount of moaning I do about this at home, right? Um, so yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> for time. <laughs> For Tom, I know, right? And so, a couple of weeks ago, I think to just stop my moaning, he gave me this most amazing thing, uh-huh. which is um, traveling and in the future, right? In 2026. So I got a while to wait. But he got me a boarding pass to go to Mars. No way. Yes. And it's Seriously, I I have never been so excited. So basically, um, you can like you can get these boarding passes right with NASA. So it's mm-hmm. so now it's Curiosity, right? It's on Mars, and in 2026 there will be like the next mission that goes uh, to Mars, um, and you get to basically submit your name um, that will be then etched onto a microchip, and so that microchip is placed. <laughs> aboard of the kind of Mars 2026 rover and then it will land on Mars and so therefore your name is on Mars and kind of performatively you know if we follow Judith Butler I will also be on Mars how exciting is that oh my goodness so you're gonna like sort of live out your dream of being a cosmonaut Right. I only have five more years to, to wait. And so he's coming with me and I'm also HIPAA. So we're all going. You're all gonna be etched. We're all going to be edged. Oh yeah. my goodness. That is so exciting. This is really exciting. Um and pretty random, but I thought you'd be um <laughs> very interested to know about my recent excitement. No, I am. And uh <laughs> I, I know how difficult it's been to not be able to travel. And obviously uh, having some cabin fever. So it's I yeah, mean, it, it makes it makes total sense. It does, right? I yeah. mean I hope um we'll get to travel before twenty twenty six. Um, and not just in our name. Um, but anyway, this is this is as much fun as we get. Wow. Anyway, welcome to Disasters Deconstructed People, where we talk about disasters. <laughs> and not just space travel. Right. But it's... it's uh, I don't even know what to say. It's left me speechless. <laughs> wow, that, that, that is a rare occasion. But no, I think the reason I kind of, I, I randomly thought about it is because today we're talking about the Caribbean. And as you know, I spent quite a lot of time in the Caribbean usually. And mm-hmm. at the same time, we don't really know much about the Caribbean perspective on disaster. So it's great that today we get to learn more about it.
In all of our previous seasons, although our audience has tended to be based in the US and UK, we've really tried to push the geographical boundaries and engage in conversations with colleagues and friends from around the world. But while we've spoken a lot about the Caribbean in relation to different issues, today will be the first time we've actually had a guest with us who is from the Caribbean. And we have an amazing guest, Dr. Barbara Carby. Welcome, Barbara. Nice to be with you. And hi, Jason. Hi, Barbara. So Barbara is the director of Disaster Risk Reduction Center at the University of the West Indies Mona Campus. And she is the former director general of the Office of Disaster Preparedness and Emergency Management in Jamaica. And I'm sure those of us who have worked in the Caribbean um, would recognize Barbara's name and also Barbara's work. So it's great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. So let's start with your journey. Um, you know, and, uh, what journey it has been. I think you've done, you've done everything. You've basically put the disaster risk reduction onto Jamaica's national agenda and pioneered the development of the national mitigation policy. Um, so how did you end up working in disasters, both in academia and in practice? Well, it's, it's an interesting story. Um, I had finished my PhD, which was actually in geochemistry. And I was looking for a job, as all brand new PhDs are. <clears throat> and Franklin MacDonald was then the head of the Office of Disaster Preparedness in Jamaica. He was heading off to Antigua to head up what was a regional project for disaster preparedness which was just being set up. And he said to me, you should, you should try for the job of the director of mitigation, planning and research at Odpem. So I said, okay. Of course, as you can imagine, coming out of geochemistry, I had no idea about disaster risk management. So I was, the, the day before the interview, I'm frantically looking up whatever I can on mitigation. <laughs> disasters, risk reduction, hazards, and all of that. So I, I did the interview and I got the job as the head of their planning, mitigation, and research division at the Office of Disaster Preparedness. So that's how I got started in disaster risk management, actually. Um, then when I came back from Cayman a few years back, because I went to Cayman to set up their disaster office for them, when I came back to Jamaica from Cayman, the position of director of the Disaster Risk Reduction Center was open. So I got that position and ended up at the University of the West Indies. That's amazing. What, what a story, you know, what kind of random careers I think disaster researchers and disaster practitioners have. Uh, it always fascinates me. It, yes, yes. Of course, my geology background, which was my first degree, has come in very, very useful. Mm. Um, in, in terms of risk reduction, but it was sort of fortuitous that I ended up here. But I'm sure many of us glad you did, you know, so yeah. <laughs> thank you for sharing the story. Um, so Barbara, it seems like um, very few disasters in the Caribbean are actually covered in the news. And most people, if you ask them, would probably know about the earthquake in Haiti, the hurricanes in Puerto Rico, maybe Montserrat's volcanic eruption. But there's, of course, so much more going on. And more recently, the impacts of Irma and Maria devastated quite a number of islands, for instance. Oh. And so 
What we often don't hear about is how small island states in the Caribbean provide a lot of support to each other, and generally about the regional approach to managing risk. So maybe you could tell us a bit more about disaster risk management in the region. Yes, Jason. Um, what is interesting is that in the, in the Caribbean, when we have a weather-related or climate-related event, it affects multiple countries, which of course may not be the case elsewhere. In the United States, for example, you could have multi-state effects, but the, the impact is really on one country. The other aspect of major disasters in the region is that because the countries are so small, the impact is disproportionate. So, for example, if we look at Dominica, in 2015, Dominica was affected by Tropical Storm Erica, and the impact was equivalent to 90% of their GDP, gross domestic product. In 2017, they got hit by Maria, which was, which was a Category 5 storm. And the impact there was on 225% of GDP. So you can see that because of the small size and the fragility of the country, you can actually wipe out several years' GDP in just one event. The, their trade de deficit went from 100 million Eastern Caribbean dollars to 250 million, which is more than double. So we have the human impact, and then we have the socioeconomic impact. And it's very, very difficult for small countries to come back from these uh, major events. So what sort of mechanisms do we have for disaster risk management? Well, the CARICOM states, that's the Caribbean community, the CARICOM states have a mechanism called the Caribbean Disaster Emergency Management Agency, CEDEMA, which is the umbrella organization for disaster risk management in mainly the Anglophone Caribbean. But Haiti and Suriname are also members of CARICOM and CEDEMA. And CEDEMA has what is called a regional response mechanism. That mechanism brings together teams with different skill sets. And these teams are deployed to countries which are affected by different disasters to assist those countries in managing the event. So the, the, that team, the regional response mechanism, would provide assistance, for example, in emergency management, in logistics, supplies management, also specialized technical skills, engineering, environmental health, public health, emergency medicine, and so on. And interestingly enough, the team also includes academia. So the University of the West Indies, which is my home university, is part of that regional response mechanism. And we provide skill sets which may be required for the response. And added to that, we also, of course, have development partners who provide help. And so you'd have maybe a OCHA, UNDP, um, and so on. And all that is now coordinated out of CEDEMA in Barbados. 
you know what what i find particularly interesting i guess going back to the point jason sort of started the question with is that we don't even realize how comprehensive the mechanism is you know for the caribbean when it comes to disaster risk management mm -hmm. somehow there is a lot of narrative in um in the uk news you know in european news i'm not sure about the us in that when something happens in the caribbean you know particularly during the hurricane season for instance um all the help seems to be coming you know from the kind of this great nation of the uk you know through the aid and nobody ever mentions the local mechanisms which is of course you know tells a very different narrative from what is actually happening on the ground and i you know obviously there are historic kind of roots to that narrative right um which which and this is what i want to 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 ask you about next you alluded to this now and i know also you've spoke about this quite a lot in different platforms in that um disaster risk reduction should be integrated um with the national development it should just be mainstreamed and become a part of the national development um and yet it remains uh, quite a big challenge for many small developing um, island states so to what extent do you think historical processes play a role in this um and you know should we acknowledge history more when we talk about national development and disaster risk reduction in small island developing states yeah you, you bring up an interesting perspective there kasinia and i'm going to answer the disaster risk reduction uh integration into development but from the historical perspective for response you raise an important point the the perception of course is that we are helpless here and we must have outside intervention to respond and that narrative is actually problematic sometimes on the ground because entities that come in to help and these are they could be government they could be un they could be ngos they don't actually expect to find a mechanism and a structure on the ground so they tend to land and they go off and do what the, whatever it is that they want to do without referring to the existing structure without integrating into that existing structure which would actually make for a more efficient response so one of the things we ask the persons who come to help and don't misunderstand me the help is welcome and it is needed in many cases but it's just as if the persons who are coming to help can try to coordinate with the existing mechanism then we can achieve a lot more more efficiently and in a shorter time eliminate eliminate duplication and 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 cover the gaps so that historical perspective which doesn't take into account the evolution of drm in the region colors uh response for sure now for disaster risk reduction i think we could actually go along a similar path so in in the pre-independence days or just the post-independence days many of our scientists say were from abroad um because we were former british colonies many of our scientists and our you know our technocrats were from britain now we have not gone like you know 50 years some countries beyond independence and we have several universities in the caribbean producing very very high quality science so we can actually and we do much of our own risk analysis 
our own risk mapping or hazard analysis, um, even climate change, downscaling of global models to the region and so on. All of that is being done and can be done by local scientists. Now, the, the, the problem, I think, is that in the Caribbean, as elsewhere, disaster risk management started with response. So if you look at Jamaica, for example, ODPEM, the National Disaster Office, was set up after a major flood. Then we went from response to preparedness. And then we went into risk analysis, risk reduction, and so on. So risk reduction and mitigation, if you like, actually start, started like maybe two decades after response and preparedness. So there is that lag. And I think that lag has influenced the thinking of many persons at the policy and the political level. It has had to be an entire sort of resensitization and reorientation of these persons who are important for implementing risk reduction. So th that, of course, has sort of slowed the, the progress. So while we, try to, while we try to sensitize these persons, we can't do as much as we would like because we don't have the resources. So that's one aspect of it. What, what is needed? I think perhaps there is one aspect of risk reduction, which we have not really discussed that much in the region. And that is this whole idea of the acceptable level of risk. Most of our countries actually have not defined what they would consider to be the acceptable level of risk. So if you had defined that, you would be in a better position to then define what resources you want to put into disaster risk reduction so that the acceptable level of risk is not exceeded. Now, if we look at the, at the pandemic, I think one of the lessons we have learned, or I should say reinforced, because in the, in the region, we've always had a multi-hazard approach, how important it is to have a multi-hazard approach. We haven't had an event from the hurricane season so far, but we've seen that the US southeastern coast has had two events. We would have had to manage the COVID response and the hurricane response at the same time. So it's very important that when you're looking at risk reduction, you're looking not only at the natural hazards, but you're looking at the pandemics, you're looking at some of the anthropogenic hazards which can also arise. So you, you need a really comprehensive disaster risk reduction program, which often is, is not the case. The other thing I think that COVID has shown us is the importance of having robust systems. So for example, our, our health systems have been under tremendous pressure, globally, really. If your health system was weak normally, then trying to cope with COVID plus the normal burden of healthcare in the country is extremely difficult. Um, now impossible, I would say. You need a robust system in normal times to then be able to cope with the problems you're going to have when you have a disaster occurring. Um, something as simple as water. Water is important for washing hands for COVID risk reduction. In the Caribbean, 
many households do not have running water. So you see right away that your chance of reducing the risk is lessened just by not having running water, by people having to use water from a tank or, you know, from a barrel or a drum or whatever. So your, your normal infrastructure has to be robust to actually enable your risk reduction programs to be successful. We do often adopt this kind of hazard-centric approach to disaster risk management, which is which allows technocrats to kind of dominate the discourse and talk about you know the scary hazards that we face rather than the systemic injustices that create vulnerability for people. Right. So I what I I know you've done a lot of work on inclusive DRR, focusing on people with disabilities and gendered vulnerabilities and so on. And um, this discussion around vulnerability usually becomes very prominent during the hurricane season for your region. And this year, of course, it happened against the backdrop of a pandemic. And on this podcast, we've talked before about how labeling people as vulnerable can be really problematic. And you mentioned a few moments ago about how those coming to help or coming to help um, in air quotes can be... Um, or need to adopt a historically conscious approach. But at the same time, labeling people as resilient, as we've seen in Haiti before, isn't very helpful either. So how should we talk about vulnerability and resilience, in your opinion? And do you have any experiences uh, that you can share with us about, about this? Well, I think the recent or the relatively recent shift to an interdisciplinary and even transdisciplinary approach in disaster risk management has been pivotal in ensuring that we, we, do we do not focus only on the hazard, that really we focus on risk, which includes the hazard, includes exposure, includes, includes vulnerability. So that, that shift led really by academia recognizing the necessity on the ground has been, has been good. Now, I, I don't think the, the concept of vulnerability in itself is necessarily problematic. The, the problem as I see it is that very often certain groups are stereotyped as being vulnerable and vulnerable is then interpreted as victimhood. So, the perception is that, say, for example, if you're a woman, you're vulnerable and you're going to be a victim. Or sometimes it goes for children. Um, sometimes it goes for the elderly, persons with disability and so on. And that, that very limited perception, that stereotyping, ignores the fact that whoever you are, you can contribute something to, to disaster risk management and to, disa to disaster risk reduction. So this stereotyping and the popular narrative means that the skills, the knowledge, the expertise that these groups can bring to the table is lost because we don't recognize it. 
because of the narrative that we insist on pursuing. One of the things I find interesting about the pandemic is that it has shown that all of us are vulnerable in some regard. Eh? So some persons are more vulnerable economically. Some persons are vulnerable psychologically. Other persons are vulnerable because of health. Other persons are vulnerable because of age. So there is no one group that you should really pick out and stereotype as being totally vulnerable and totally helpless. For me, the perspective should be, whoever you are, let us recognize what you can bring to disaster risk management, what you can bring to disaster risk reduction. So the question is really, how do we get to the point where we all respect and value what each individual, what each community brings to the table instead of stereotyping persons or groups as being helpless. For resilience, I, I think perhaps we need a much wider discussion around resilience. I, I know it has very much become the, the flavor of the month and it has been adopted by politicians, by policymakers, technocrats, and the population. And that is a good thing. Because it, it focuses us, I think, on many of the strengths which exist. However, I'm not sure that when we use the term resilience, we're all talking about the same thing. Or we understand it in the same way. Because there really is no common definition of resilience that is guiding the dialogue, say, in the, in the Caribbean. In many cases, we really don't even have clearly defined goals or a roadmap that would take us on this path to resilience. And I sometimes wonder if we'll even know. If we, if we become resilient, will we even know? If we haven't actually defined what it is, defined what the goals are, the pathways, and so on. So what, one aspect of DRM, which I think, can be improved and is, is something that we should look at, is a far more participatory approach on concepts and theories. So for, so for, for many decades now, we have recognized that it is important to get the community persons involved on the ground. And we have gotten them involved very successfully in the practical aspects, the applications of disaster risk management, the community mapping, and so on and so forth. Is it time now that we should engage the population in a more theoretical, a more conceptual dialogue to see what they could bring to the table, to see how, in fact, we could link their perspectives with the academic perspective? Would that enrich the dialogue? For example, so this, this more participatory approach is something I think perhaps that we should be looking at as the next step for disaster risk reduction, for the resilience dialogue.
I, I, I think you're raising a really important point and we've kind of, you know, we've touched upon this in, in many of our episodes, in fact, and how important it is to hear other voices, right? And I think now in disaster risk management, we, we fail too often to do that, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, hopefully, hopefully we, we will do better in the future. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Barbara. We've unpacked a lot and it, it's, it's just so interesting to learn more about the region that I, I guess our audiences are not very familiar with, um, particularly in some places. So thank you so much for your time and for chatting to us today. You're welcome, Ksenia. It was my pleasure. Enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, I, one of our things for season four that we're trying to achieve is to really give a um, go a bit deeper into some of the inequities that exist even within our like discourses and within the research community in terms of like very Eurocentric approaches to, to these discourses and like the terminology we use. And like when you were talking, it just reminded me of, um, Gonzalo's work, that, that paper, Ksenia, remember the, the paper, uh, we said, they said. yeah, it was like, mm. we, it was called, we said, they said, and it's like the difference between the, our understanding of these terminologies we apply to the, the communities that we're talking about um, as compared to what they actually say about themselves is very different, right? Yes. Yeah. So I hope in our fourth yeah. season we can really get into some of these some of these issues because they're they're often not at the front of the discussions about about disasters, right? <clears throat> yes, that's true. I, I think for, we have we have limited the the community participation um, mm. so much. I mean, we're just now, for example, recognizing recognizing the importance of local knowledge, yeah, and and that you can actually integrate local and scientific knowledge mm. with a little bit of effort, right? Um, so perhaps <laughs> the next step is um, um, integrating the community into the uh, into the theory, mm. the dialogue, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I must admit, I always find it fascinating. That's a good intention. Is that we go to some of the conferences, you know, and we see sort of, um, particularly natural sciences, like, you know, people who haven't really engaged with social science, right? And they're, they're finding from their projects is that, oh, and we need to talk to people. And there are, you know, a couple of social scientists sitting there thinking, really? You know, tell us more. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, uh, well, let me see. I have to, I have to hold my hand up. Coming from a natural science background, I had to learn. Mm. I had to learn that, you know. But um, my, my social science colleagues, really, were, they were a big part of that. And also, I think coming to academia from a practitioner's background brought a perspective as well. Right. Because we were engaging with people on the ground. Um, and when you go to engage what, what you will find when you go to engage with the community is that it doesn't make sense to talk only about hazards that you're interested in. You talk about the community. So right. All kinds of things come up in the discussion, mm. which, which really may, may not be under your portfolio, but which are important yeah. to the community. Yeah, so you, you get a very wide range of experience in, in interacting with at the, at the community level from just practice. Well, we really appreciate you taking the time today to speak to us and uh, hope we can 
hope I can meet you in person someday when we travel again. I don't know if it's ever going to happen. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, we live in hope. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Cassinia, Jason, and myself, Barbara Carby. 